1: Hi Sarah. Hi Sarah. G'day Sarah, I'm Peter from Bendigo. I have a question, what is so important about this election? I'm Sarah Wilson and you're listening to This Wild Election, a mini-series that will help everyone who gives a shit about the stuff that defines our nation to make their vote count. Alright everyone, we're in week three of this election campaign, past the halfway mark and The polls have put the Australian Labor Party ahead of the LNP, so we're talking 53 to 47 or 54 to 46, depending on which poll you go by. Now, last episode, I spoke with Sean Kelly about Scott Morrison, and today we're going to talk about Anthony Albanese, Labor's leader. Now, only a week or so ago, I think a lot of Australians would probably have struggled to point to Labor's leader, Anthony Albanese, in a lineup. And that's the thing with Albo, as he's known, he's not someone who outwardly screams larrikin raconteur with a swag of marketing slogans ready to go. And that's something his opponent, Scott Morrison, has certainly capitalized on and he's running with the line, you know, you don't know what you're getting with that guy. What's his name? Can you trust someone you don't really know? But in the last week or so, things have shifted perhaps a little. You know, Anthony Albanese, he emerged from COVID isolation. He's appeared on the cover of InStyle magazine a few days ago, looking particularly smooth and Italian interviewed by former Australian of the Year Grace Tame, weirdly enough. And he launched the Labor campaign on Sunday over in Perth. And so a lot of his policies and and Anthony himself have had a bit of airtime. But I think the question remains, you know, this is a guy who could potentially be our leader, May 22nd. Who is Anthony Albanese? You know, what is he good at? What does he and the Labor Party stand for? Do his fumbly gaffes matter? And how will it look if Labor is voted in as a minority government, having to bargain with a bunch of Greens and independent crossbenchers? Yeah, that scenario. Today, I'm joined by Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper, who also wrote Albo's biography, Albanese, Telling It Straight. So Karen, uh, welcome. welcome to my podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, look, you wrote Albanese's biography and you've been in the press gallery for for decades now. And I think we met there 25 years ago. So you've been around, you've watched Anthony Albanese for a while. And of course, written his book. Can you give a quick kind of wiki style bio of the man? And I suspect that many people listening will find much of what you share, you know, quite new because we don't know all that much.
0: That's right. So he grew up in Sydney, in Camperdown, in, in Sydney, and he grew up with a single mum uh, as his only parent in a council house. He, they were, you know, pretty low income families. She, had a, she was on an invalid pension because she had a very crippling arthritic disorder. So he had to sort of fend for himself a bit and often had to be a carer for her. So they were very, very t- tight units. She brought him up on her own because he was the son of uh, an Italian man that she met on a trip to Europe. She took a a cruise to England and Europe and she met him. He was a steward on the ship. They had a fling. She got pregnant. When she told him, he said, look, I'm actually engaged to be married to someone else. And so she left and came home to Australia and never actually saw him again and made up this story because it was the 1960s in Sydney, conservative Catholic family. She said that she had married someone while she was away. He had died in a terrible car accident and she got pregnant. She was contemplating giving up the baby. She was under pressure to do that. At the last minute, she decided she couldn't do that and she kept him. And so they grew up together and she, Marianne, her name was, lived in the same council house her whole life. It's where she grew up with her parents and she brought her son up there as well.
1: Wow. I wasn't aware of that. I mean, I guess that, that's where the Italian name comes from.
0: That's right. So mm. he had the name of a man that until he was an adult himself, he'd never met. And it wasn't until he was about 15 that his mum sat him down and said, look, actually, I didn't tell you the whole truth. I don't know if your father's alive or not. He didn't die in a car accident. I just told you that story because I needed to protect our reputations and she pretended that she'd been married. So she gave her son the name and she took the name on herself. And the legacy of that is that he didn't really know how it was meant to be pronounced as he grew up. So he <laughs> he, he answers to a whole lot of pronunciations. Albanese, 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 and he ended up representing a part of Sydney that had quite a solid Italian community. And in the lead up to his political career, one of the things that made him conscious about the absence of his dad, and many things obviously would do that, was the Italian community saying, oh, what part of Italy are you from? Where's your family from? And how come you don't know how to pronounce your name? And so all of these things, uh, among many other things, contributed to him eventually wanting to try and find his father. And he went on a search after his mother died. He felt that it was somehow a betrayal of her to try and do it before she died. He became curious. He went looking for him after she died and through an amazing set of coincidences and sort of sliding doors moments, he found him.
1: Yeah, wow. I mean, that's a story that we could go into, but hey, we might stick to politics for now. He was also previously married. We're talking Anthony Albanese, or Albanese, as even some of his, his party members call him. And he's got a son, right? Nathan.
0: He does. He has a son, Nathan. Nathan's, death, I think, 21 years old now. Uh, and he was married to Carmel Tebbett, who at one point was Deputy Premier of New South Wales. They were one of the big power couples in politics, state and federal. They split up. Uh, a couple of years ago now, I think maybe three years ago, and um, she moved out. And they share. He's an adult, Nathan, so they share um, catching up with Nathan. Have what's well, not custody anymore, but Nathan moves between the two houses, as I understand it, and um,
1: is very close to both his parents. Yeah, yeah, we don't see him very much. He doesn't roll him out and put him on podiums, but perhaps it'll change if if he becomes leader. He's also got a new partner who I became aware of, of course, when he had the glow up, you know, the big sort of makeover and everybody was saying there must be a woman behind this. And then we all sort of, you know, did a Google search and went, oh yeah, he's got a girlfriend. Again, he didn't really put that out there, did he? He didn't capitalize on it and still doesn't seem to.
0: No, it's interesting. I met her a couple of years ago. Uh, He- he took her to the Woodford Music Festival um with him when he was doing a speaking thing there. And I was involved in that I go to the Woodford Festival too. And I was interviewing him um, and introducing him for that speech. And he brought Jodie along as a as a as a newish partner at that point. And it's quite interesting because it never really went anywhere. The paparazzi never got onto it. And so mm. they had, I think, a period of time where they got to know each other a bit better without there being any any media drama about that. And it wasn't until I think they were seen some months later out to dinner somewhere in Sydney that there were photographs published and people became aware that he had a girlfriend. So they've had a little bit of time in the beginning to get to know each other, but they've been together now for a couple
1: of years. It's funny, isn't it? Because it says a lot about, I guess, the tabloid media and their lack of coverage of Albanese, because that would be something that they probably want to get photos of. And yet they've just not gone there. That's beside the point. The other thing that's a big part of his life is, of course, his support of the Rabideaus. He's a, you know, He's been a massive supporter from a very young age. And he's also really loved by the Rabbitohs because he essentially saved them
0: Well, he certainly was a part of that process. So he he always talks about having three great faiths and depending on his audience, he uses them in different order. But for the purposes of this, the Australian Labor Party, the Catholic Church and the South Sydney Rugby League Club and He's been a Souths fan since he was a kid. His mum was a Souths fan, took, you know, took him to games. He grew up with the club. And through the 1990s where there was the big Super League push and involvement by what was then News Limited, attempts to shut down well, merge clubs, successful attempts to merge clubs in some mm-hmm. cases and exclude others, he was a part of the group of quite a, quite a diverse group of high profile people who pushed very hard to get the public behind the club and to make sure that it wasn't permanently excluded it was cut for a couple of years but they they organized helped organize these mass protests that really became about don't tell me which footy team I can follow. Don't tell me I can just switch teams. This is about loyalty and, you know, things that go quite deep in people's hearts, especially when it comes to their, their footy team in a, in, a, in a footy culture. So he was a very big part of that and they succeeded in having Souths reinstated and they've been back in the, in the league ever since.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Last episode I interviewed Sean Kelly about scott morrison he's written a biography of scott morrison and there are so many parallels it's almost like they're in this sort of you know parallel race together both men are saying you know i'm a see, you, what you see is what you get kind of a guy you know i'm the quintessential aussie bloke you know they've both got a football team the Rabbitohs and the sharkies and then there's also scomo and albo who came first in all of this karen
0: well, it's interesting, isn't it? I think Anthony Albanese had a dig at Scott Morrison the other day or somebody. No, it was somebody, maybe Jason Clare in the, in the intro speech to the Labour Party launch had a dig at Scott Morrison for making up his own nickname. And there was a bit to that. Some people occasionally referred to him as Skomo, but I think he grabbed hold of it and sort of used it as his branding, if you like, whereas the Albo nickname was always what other people called him. And I don't know that he generally referred to himself that way all the time. It was mostly what other people called him. And I certainly know that he supported the South Sydney club from when he could breathe. Um, I think Scott Morrison's support of the Sharks probably came when he became the member for Cook, which is the area that covers the Sutherland Shire. You're right, yeah. Prior to
1: that, he, he... was a union supporter.
0: Yeah, and he had his eye on a different electorate. He had his eye on the seat of Mitchell, which ended up going to his sort of political lieutenant, Alex Hawke. So he moved, he moved his ambitions with Alex Hawke's help to a different electorate. And then I guess you get involved in the culture of the, of the place and that's when he got involved in, in the Sharks and that's where his support of
1: the Sharks came from. So what kind of a man has he emerged as? Anthony Albanese, based on this upbringing, you know, in particular, I suppose, that idea of being a carer for his mum for so long.
0: I think he's very attuned to the, the world of people who have to care for others in difficult circumstances. I think that experience growing up in that way made him tough, as in having to fend for himself a bit. You know, sometimes his mum was in hospital and he had to live on his own and he did have to, you know, fend for himself, look after himself. And so I suppose you grow up fast. In that regard, and you can end up a bit, maybe a bit brittle sometimes, but uh, he's also sensitive to, to the situation that people are in when they are trying to hold down a job, look after a family member, put bread on the table. He's quite a sensitive person. He's quite an emotional person. Uh, He gets very emotional when he talks about his mum in particular. She was his whole world for a long time and he's still quite emotional. He still regularly goes to the cemetery and leaves flowers, which is not something everyone does. It's an interesting thing that he he feels that he still wants to do that to keep a a very
1: active connection with the memory of his mum. It's interesting, having read bits of your book or at least excerpts of it and hearing yourself talk about Albanese more recently, it's interesting. A lot of people, I think, have this impression of Anthony Albanese as quite an awkward, meek, mild kind of man um, who doesn't raise his voice. Yet having read parts of your book and heard you talk about Anthony Albanese in various forums. That's not what you know him as, right? Like he's actually got another side to him.
0: Well, the interesting thing is his reputation as a young member of the Labor Party, coming up through the left of the party, getting a party official's job in, in Sydney's head office of the New South Wales Labor Party, which is no picnic, you know, it's, it's about as rough as they come when you talk about the Labor Party. He was a brawler, you know, he was a street fighter in the Labor Party. He would go in all guns blazing. He had a sharp sort of sometimes quite shrill voice. You would hear him sort of shouting as they did at Labor Party conferences. And when he got into Parliament, his job was kind of the attack dog. Um, He got in in 96 against the incoming wave of, of the coalition Remember, Labor lost. John Howard won. It was a it was a massive inward sweep of coalition people, and he was one of the few Labor people coming going the other way, coming in when when so many were going out. And Kim Beasley was leader and was trying to regroup, get the party back together after that time. And telling them all to just, look, just just pull your heads in. We you know we've been wounded. We need to, to to get ourselves right again. Everyone, you just sort of just 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 keep it down for a while. But then he singled out Albanese. He said, "Not you. I want to, I want you to go in hard against them because somebody's got to you know push back. And so that's your job for the time being." So. He was known as a sort of an, mm. a, an attack dog for a long time. And I think the closer he came to a leadership position at the top of the Labor Party, the more aware he became that he needed to tone some of that down. I think that's been happening over a long a long time. He became more of a, a negotiator, if not quite a conciliator, then not, not so much yelling and a bit more talking. And I think now what you're seeing is a concerted effort to be less of a of a of a yeller and maybe now it's it's could have gone a bit the other way and people don't know that tougher side of him and they just they just see this sort of nice guy who seems to and particularly through covid acquiesce all the time and and that was a deliberate move on the labor party's part because they felt the community didn't want antagonism and hostility when we were in this big health emergency. They wanted politicians to work together. So that's what he did. Mm. Um, he's been marked down a bit by his own supporters for doing that uh, and then started to push back against the government when he sensed there was an appetite
1: for that. But people see him as a bit too nice now as a result. You've described him as incredibly strategic, and I think you've used that word a lot. Is that sort of what's going on here? Has he been strategic, you know, in switching from firebrand and sort of, you know, attack dog to conciliatory and sort of stepping back? I mean, I really do think it's a big part of Labour's policy, isn't it, is to let Scott Morrison kind of sink himself, you know, and we'll be over here looking like the grown up party who's got their act together. Is that an Albanese strategy?
0: Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it doesn't mean when, we, when you say is he being strategic, going from attack dog to sort of being nice. I think he genuinely has moderated a bit in his approach to politics. So it's not that it's fake. It's something that has come as he's grown up in politics and become a, you know, now a very experienced, long-standing member of the parliament with in senior positions. But he is very strategic when it comes to his politics, and I've said this a lot. But uh, when I interviewed Meredith Bergman, who was a, a friend and colleague of his through the left wing of the Labor Party in New South Wales, she she always commented that she prided herself on being able to speak or think two or three steps ahead in politics. And then she met Anthony Albanese and discovered he could think 10 steps ahead. And I have to say, as a biographer, I I had known him around politics for a long time, but I hadn't really ever fixed on that um, aspect of him until I went, underwent the biography and realized actually he was quite skilled at thinking, where do I want to be? What am I trying to achieve? How am I going to get there? And to take small and actually quite patient steps towards it to make a plan for how to get somewhere that wasn't obvious at the time. And sometimes that was a policy position, like he he decided at one point as a young politician that um, he thought that the restrictions around for same-sex couples were ridiculous and didn't make any sense. He was a believer in diversity in families. So, you know, he said about making small, advocating for small changes like initially, People's superannuation, access to superannuation for same sex couples. That wasn't a short path to marriage equality. It was one small step, meant a lot for those couples, but it started to set the tone for that. You know, so little by little by little, there are steps and these are the sorts of things that he'll do in a policy sense, but he'll also employ it in politics. So if he's figured out there's someone he needs to get or get rid of, he will be, he'll be thinking a long way in advance what is that person like? Where is their weak point? How am I going to do that? And I think he has done that with Scott Morrison. He studied him for a long time, worked out where the points of attack might be as a political opponent, and has set about trying to highlight some of those vulnerabilities in the contest between the two of them. And so it's become very much a person-to-person contest because both Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese have decided that the other one is their best weapon. And so they've each attacked each other in a, quite a personal way.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting that you put it in those terms because I think a lot of us underestimate Anthony Albanese. We think he's just sitting there being sort of, you know, boxed around by Scott Morrison and his marketing now, you know, and his slogans and his ability to campaign so effectively. But what you're saying is that behind the scenes, you know, Albo has mapped out a strategy and he knows exactly where he's taking this. This is not him flopping along. He's actually got a game plan. Do you think that that actually augurs well for him? Firstly, in terms of running this campaign to May 21st and potentially winning? And secondly, does it make for a good leader? I think
0: he could win. I do think it augurs well for mapping out a campaign. There are some curveballs in there in that he doesn't always get everything right in the moment. So he's got the long-term strategy, but we saw that terrible stumble on the first day when he couldn't remember the unemployment rate uh, and the in interest rate, cash rate. And that's not to say that it, it wasn't just about the number, it was the way he couldn't remember it. It was the look of panic and the sense that he was completely at sea. And when people are starting to think about you as a potential leader and say, you know, is he, is he up to it? Can he pull it together? That really sort of hit a nerve. He can make some of those presentational mistakes that undermine his strategy, but his strategy has held up, I think. And in terms of the strategic nature, probably relates a little bit to negotiation skills. And while he's good at crunching heads together and will happily do that, certainly in a political domain, many of his enemies within the Labor Party would tell you that he's good at that. He's also good at negotiating for outcomes, both politically and and in a policy sense. He didn't support Julia Gillard taking over, but he still managed to find a way to work with her and for her in terms of her government. And he was the one that led all the negotiations with the crossbench. He's got good relationships, weirdly, with people you would think he wouldn't have good relationships with. Like his very close old mates with Bob Catter, from the independent from Queensland. <laughs> he, he invests a lot in
1: personal relationships. But the ability to negotiate, even with sort of, you know, people that you wouldn't expect him to to have relationships with, I suppose it's going to be a really important skill, given that in all likelihood, it's going to be a hung parliament, or at least whoever does win, they're not going to be winning by landslide. At least that's what it's looking like this far in. And so there's a very good chance that whoever does win government will have to do so as a minority government negotiating with a whole bunch of crossbenchers who represent a completely disconnected and broad range of interests. So I suppose it speaks well to that, especially if it's, you know, it'll be the first time in 60 years, apart from that 2010 moment when Julia Gillard held a minority government, that this has had to be done. So there's not a big legacy is there of hung parliaments and minority governments having to negotiate like this, and yet he was the last person to do it. That's right. And I
0: mean, we'll bear in mind, if, if the Labor Party wins the election, most of the time it won't be him as an individual doing the negotiating. He'll have to have other people doing it. Otherwise, he'd never be doing anything else. But he would certainly be kind of running the show in terms of, okay, here's
1: how we should approach X, Y, and Z person. I want to go back really quickly to that gaffe that he made on the first day. And what do you make of that? Because so many people have analysed it and thankfully it's it has dropped away. I do get the impression the general public don't really hang on to that. Although if he did it a second time, I do think that would be different. The impression I have is that his mind was on to other things. And now that you explain the strategy concept, the fact that he is generally nine, ten steps ahead of the rest of us, does that explain what went on in that moment because i find it very hard to believe he didn't know the unemployment figure he has said since he did know the figure and i think
0: he, i think he does know the figure i think he was He'd been, he was thinking about the, the situation they were just in. Um, I think he had a young person with him and they'd been telling, there had been some kind of story to do with whatever. I can't even remember what the announcement was that they were doing at the time. Um, and, so, and maybe his mind was thinking ahead. You should still be able in the moment to recall those things. And, and you know, even though there's, there's a lot of criticism of journalists for asking the gotcha question, but, you know, fair enough in some circumstances, where it was a problem, um, as I think I said before, is that it, it was the way he responded. That he looked completely thrown by it, and he looked a bit panicky. And nobody wants a, a potential prime minister to look panicky, and that that was the problem. And I think that goes more to the fact that he hasn't been under this kind of pressure. This this the level of scrutiny under this camp in this campaign is much greater than he's been under previously because. He hasn't even been under as much pressure as an opposition leader would be normally because we've had this pandemic and everything's been about the government. The opposition did step back and 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 let the government do what it needed to do in an emergency situation. So he hasn't felt the full force of the media attention and he hasn't been elevated to the status of potential prime minister until now. And this was the first day of that. And I think it was as much that, just not quite being in the rhythm of this sort of onslaught that other leaders of the opposition in circumstances away from a pandemic would have experienced a bit beforehand. They would have had a warm-up. Hmm. Yeah, they would have had a warm-up and he, and he hadn't. And so I think there was a bit of that. And you're right, I think if, if more things happen like that 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 will that reinforce any niggling concerns people have, that, that the guy isn't up to it, that could hark back to that day and still be a problem for him. But he seems to have found his feet a bit To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. More since then, and he doesn't, he seems to sort of be rolling with it a bit more and having the appearance of being more confident than he did on that first day. I think that wooden hesitating thing, He's he's quite a. What you see is what you get in terms of his mood and his demeanor. So if he's, if he's feeling lacking in confidence, you can see it. And I think that that was what we saw that day. But since then, you're seeing
1: this different sort of side of him a bit more, a bit more relaxed. So let's talk about actually policy, Labour's policy and what he's been promising. Labour just had an official launch in Perth on the weekend. And I should just say for everyone listening, that's not unusual to do an official launch this close to the election. In fact, I think, Karen, it's often the week before, isn't it? And I think the Liberal Party's not doing theirs until it will be at least another week or so before they do theirs. Is that right?
0: Yes, and that's traditionally for a couple of reasons. The taxpayer puts a bit more of the bill up until you launch the campaign. And then once you've launched the campaign, it's all the political parties. So they push ah. the launch as far back as they possibly can. But it also provides an opportunity for kind of to get some new momentum and to springboard into the last crucial week or two of the campaign once you have that launch because it gets you a lot more attention and you, you kind of get command of the message and off you go. So both parties, major parties generally do it that way.
1: Okay. So yes, Albanese came out of the weekend and I just was wondering if you could just take us through what their policy is on a bunch of the issues which we've been talking about in this series. And the first, of course, is climate and climate policy, which I think, you know, the Australian government under Scott Morrison quite famously now has been rather lacking in what's the Labor climate policy like?
0: They've had emissions reduction targets that have been much more substantial than the coalition have had over a longer period of time. They've moderated some of what they said they were going to aim for, but they are still steadfastly aiming, as now is the coalition, for net zero emissions by 2050. The trajectory for getting there is slightly steeper earlier in terms of the Labor Party. They've been prepared to put a, a you know a, a pretty solid 2030 target. But they're also mindful of the people that work in fossil fuel industry now. The Labor Party is very big on supporting renewable energy not only for its environmental benefit but they say it's the it's the opportunity of new industries it's actually better for the economy ultimately as well. So they're advocating for that, but they're also advocating a transition plan away from fossil fuels for the people who are employed there. They're conscious they hold seats in coal mining areas. Last election, they were criticised of messaging one thing in the coal mining seats in Queensland and New South Wales and something else in the inner cities further south. They've tried to to, um, standardise that message, but they are saying they would still support fossil fuel based industries, but it depends on whether, you know, if if they passed environmental standards and if they could get financing. And those are two pretty big caveats because I know they want to make sure that the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Act um, is as strong as it can be. And they also quite rightly believe that the big banks are not interested in financing fossil
1: fuel projects anymore. They don't see it as the future, they see it as the past. So, even so so It sounds like it's a bit of a strategy once again is we're not going to come out and say we're going to ban fossil fuel projects. Instead, they're counting on the fact that the banks and the, and the financial institutions won't fund them. So they won't go ahead anyway, because that's where the world is heading. Is that right? Yes. Big business also knows that we need to do more
0: in favour of the environment and about reducing emissions. Business has been calling for firmer targets and for just for, for clearer and more confident ambition because they're basing investment decisions on all of this. And so for you know a decade, we had this wishy-washy on again, off again, emissions trading, no emissions trading. And for business, trying to plan and, and invest, that was impossible. So business has led the way really on this ahead of politicians saying, we recognize this is a transition that has to happen. We just want certainty. That's what
1: we want. Well, one of the big criticisms I think of traditional Labour voters who have a climate slant is hang on, guys. First of all, you've dropped your 2030 target, albeit by a small amount, but still. And you seem to be going kind of pretty light on with your climate policy. Like we expect more out of you. But would it be fair to say that there's a bit of a strategy here that they are committed, but they can't really say as such because they've got to get elected. And when they get elected, then They'll work with business and potentially a crossbench who will probably dictate more contemporary terms.
0: Yes, I'm sure there's a bit of that. I think they've also seen looking back on politics, on the terrible politics of the last 10 to 15 years on climate change, that you you have to take the people with you. So if you go out too hard in either direction, you don't take the people with you, you're not going to succeed. They are conscious of the need to, to take with them the people who are nervous about their own livelihoods. You know, Albert Neasy, one story, when I was doing the book, he took me to where he grew up, to the, to the flats in Campanown where he, he grew up. And next door to the the block of council houses that he lived in, which is still there, there was a high-rise public housing building and it had a patch of grass out the front and they had made a community garden on this patch of grass. And as we walked past it, I said, oh, isn't that fantastic, community garden, growing your own vegetables, you know, good environment, nature, blah, blah, blah. And he instantly said, where are the kids going to play? And so you would sort of think, oh, a left-leaning guy might think, oh, this is great, mm-hmm. this is all. No sustainability and all that sort of stuff, but he thought about the kids, and and I think that tells you why there's a sense of from him anyway a sense of um how's this going to affect the people? We care about the environment; it's really really important, but we also care about the people, and I think he's trying to balance those things. So he's thinking about right, how do we get there in a manner where the whole country can move and can in terms of understanding the importance of this thing and the need to do it mm-hmm. rather than going out hard, alienating some people, and then maybe undermining your your capacity to deliver it anyway. So it disappoints people, I think, that, it, that he won't stand up and go as hard pro-climate action as they would like. And certainly, green supporters have been very critical of that. And that's, that's fair criticism. They want to see from the left of politics a, a firmer statement. But he's doing that with a pragmatic lens saying, well, I know we, we want to deliver this ultimately, but we've got to deliver it you know, in steps, otherwise we might deliver nothing.
1: Yeah, that's really, really helpful. I'm glad you've cleared that up. And I know that my father, who... I'll get him to listen to this. He'll enjoy that answer because we talk about this a fair bit. Women, of course, is the other thing that I think a lot of the independents are running on. It's on the agenda. And from what I can gather, it's a little bit of a focus for Albo. He's kind of targeting women from what I can gather with these policies, childcare, aged care. And I think he's also addressing the gender pay gap as well.
0: Yeah, they're all feminized industries. Going back to your early question about his own upbringing, they're industries that he's familiar with because it's a caring industry and he had a glimpse of that experience himself. He's conscious that women earn less than men generally and then in those industries, they get overlooked and they do really hard work and particularly during the pandemic, they've done hard work and he thinks they don't get rewarded enough for it. But of course, there's always a political dimension. Uh, you know, I noticed the prime minister saying this week, oh, um, you're talking about interest rates as if it's about politics. It's not. It's about what people can afford. Well, it's all about politics. And he is thinking about politics. And so is Anthony Albanese. And, and Albanese knows that one of the results in a political terms of the debate we saw last year about women that alleged incident in Parliament House coming to light and then went into this just women in the streets about attitudes to women huge thing one of the legacies of that is that that Scott Morrison doesn't rate very well with women so having things to talk about that that are both about people's pay and their livelihoods and cost of living and ability to afford the lifestyle that you want that also happens to focus on women Mm. is not a half bad thing politically, I think, is from the Labor point of view. You know, it brings those issues together in a way that politically is probably quite useful and strong for them. So it's not as though that he's, you know, Prince Virtue only thinking about the policy dimension. He will always be thinking about the, the politics as well, because ultimately, if you don't get the politics right, you can't deliver the policy.
1: So, Karen, when we're talking women, it seems to be a big focus for Labor Party policy. But what are some of the policies themselves? Like what are the concrete policies that they're rolling out?
0: Well, they're talking a lot more about more affordable childcare, making childcare more accessible and more affordable they've been very conscious of the strain that access to childcare puts on families. So focusing very much on that. On aged care, they've spoken very recently about that. Anthony Albanese made that the centrepiece of his budget reply speech, talking particularly about the wages of people in aged care and advocating as a government or a would-be government in favour of a rise in the minimum wage and focusing on that sector. And also about having nurses 24 hours a day in nursing homes, which I confess
1: I didn't realise they weren't. 24 hours a day, but they aren't. And It makes um, absolutely no sense. A nursing home without nurses. I mean, yeah. I don't think many Australians realise that. They're also advocating
0: for higher pay for women and they're advocating for a higher minimum wage generally. Boosting productivity, looking at projects that will employ people, skills training, the, the idea that the economy becomes more productive and that therefore that work is more valuable and housing uh, and pushing very much housing accessibility. Young people are saying, how can I ever afford to buy a house? And they can't afford to rent at the moment either. So there's a lot more conversation about housing. And the issue really that neither side is addressing terribly much yet is supply of housing. They've got subsidy schemes to help people into the markets, but that's not going to do anything to cap the price of housing.
1: I'll just tick off another couple of things that I think are on my agenda, but also it's been a theme that we've been addressing in this podcast series. First Nations, voice to Parliament, are they supportive or not? Yes, they are very supportive of First Nations Great. Voice Department. Okay. They have um, Indigenous members, as does the
0: coalition, but Labor has been very, very strongly in favour of, of the voice and hasn't had the same doubts about it that have been expressed by members of the coalition about it becoming a third chamber of parliament and that
1: sort of thing. There are advocates for it, yeah. Okay, and some sort of, I guess, integrity commission at a federal level, so an ICAC. Is Labor supportive of that?
0: Yes, and they want public hearings, which is different to the version that the coalition has produced.
1: Good another question from a listener. Hi, I'm Thomas from the Blue Mountains. I know last election, Labor had too many policies. I think over 150, and I think it's been seen part of the reason they lost. It was too much. This time, they're doing this small target approach, but are there enough policies this time? <laughs>
0: Well, that's an excellent question, and that's one of the things that we will dissect afterwards if they don't win and question whether that was the right approach. Last time around, three years ago, as you say, Labor had an enormous number of policies, and they just provided made made themselves a huge target, and and the coalition were able to exploit some of those key policies, particularly in taxation, and scare people enough that they said, oh, no, we we don't want that. That was a mistake and also Labor's own review of its election found that some of the policies it produced angered certain constituencies like people of religious faith that felt that there wasn't enough there for them. So they've taken a different approach this time. They've made themselves a much smaller target. They've chosen to be, um, to talk about ideas, but not necessarily specific policies until quite late in the piece. And certainly from both sides, the days are gone of seeing the great big health policy, the great big tax policy, the great big education policy. So now it's very targeted, it's sort of narrow casting to particular groups, and that is all designed to give the other side as the least amount of ammunition as possible to attack you and send out messages on social media, which are very effective, that just put that little seed of doubt into people's minds and make them think, oh, no, I don't really want to go for that.
1: Mm, okay, that's interesting. I've got another question from a listener.
0: Hey, Sarah, it's Claudia from Fremantle WA here. There's been a lot of chatter lately about polling
1: in the lead up to the federal election and the outcomes of polling in the 2019 election that saw Scott Morrison
0: have a surprise win over Bill Shorten, even though the polling had indeed said that Labor were going to win by quite a margin. I wonder your thoughts on this election and polling and whether we should be paying any attention to them and and any attention moving forward as well, and whether we can actually trust polling to tell us how an election will go. It's an interesting question. We know from the last election that polling got it wrong. All the published polls got it wrong and famously so now. And the pollsters, I think, were quite chastened and went away and looked at their methodology and tried to adjust it to take account for some of the things that they'd clearly overlooked. You know, people don't have have landlines anymore. People have non-English speaking background, the way people respond to questions, their willingness to tell the truth, a whole lot of these things came into into play there so they adjusted their methodology and they assure us that it is better than it was before now not being a pollster i haven't unraveled the fine details of that but that's what they tell us where polls can be useful is they do give you a general idea of of a trend where you have to be careful about national polls and the distribution of preferences, and that is another factor that can, you know, they, they sort of estimate based on previous voting patterns, which way preferences are likely to fall beyond the primary vote. It depends where that vote is. And if you're looking at a, a figure for the entire country, you know, the Labor opposition might have really strengthened its vote hugely in, in Labor-held seats, in safe Labor seats that, that they already hold. If more and more people in Labor seats are going to vote Labor, it's not going to change the outcome in the seat. They're already winning it. Where they need people to be saying that they're changing their vote is in marginal seats where it will make a difference, where the few hundred people who decide to vote Labor after voting Liberal will swing the seat to them. That's where it matters, and you can't see that in the big national poll. You need marginal seat polling, which is very expensive because you need to have a big enough sample to make it valid. Now, the political parties will invest in that, but the big polling companies generally don't do a lot of it. So we do have to take it all with a grain of salt. What we are seeing, though, in the published polls that would be worrying the coalition is that that those figures have stayed stubbornly low for the coalition that the two-party figure we're seeing is not moving every fortnight for the last i don't know several several polls it's been the same and labor's been ahead and they'll be not very happy about that and the primary vote hasn't budged very much either labor's primary vote is low but when you add into a contest like this all of these so-called teal independents that are challenging liberals in previously safe-held liberal seats and if we believe What people inside both major parties are telling us, some of those seats are in trouble and may fall to independence. You've got this whole other factor that might make it hard for either side to win a majority. So the the polls are trying to factor that in as well. It's a complicated equation this time.
1: Yeah, and it's probably the Labor Party is very much distancing themselves from the fact that they're ahead in the polls because nobody wants to count on it too too much at, at this point in the game. Hey, I've got a question that came in from actually a friend this morning. She'd read a Guardian article yesterday written by Catherine Murphy, who I know is a friend and colleague. And there's a quote in it that she refers to. Albanese doesn't exhibit any of the hallmarks of toxic masculinity rather than a set jaw. There's an incline of the head, a gesture of listening, a physical glance at humility. Do you agree with that statement?
0: Yeah, I don't think he's a practitioner of toxic masculinity, no. So, yeah, so in, in that regard, yeah. And, and he's got a lot of female friends. So he, I think he likes women and gets on well with women. I don't think he looks down on women. So, yeah, I, I probably would agree mm-hmm. with that. He can be an aggressive personality generally to men and women if he needs to be, particularly in a political sense. But it's not a,
1: there's not, I don't get a sense from it's him. It's even-handed. I think it's an important question, actually. I wouldn't normally ask a question like that, but I think it is important because I think it's an issue that has come up so heavily over the last year to 18 months. And it's relevant in politics right now, especially if we want to clean up from the top down. Thank you for your answer on that one. Quickly, really quickly. Mm. One of the relationships I think that speaks to that that's quite interesting to me from the outside is the
0: friendship between Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong. They are extremely close friends and... Sort of political confidence, and he has great respect for her quite clearly and she for him you know she was one of those who introduced him at the launch on Sunday and they stood together you know she's the senate leader and the deputy leader was out with COVID so he wasn't there but it, but it was a, um, an opportunity to see that relationship and they are really good friends. He's always been an advocate for, for same-sex couples. And I've seen them engaged, you know, over a long period of time. And they really do have a very respectful, mutually respectful, political and clearly personal friendship.
1: Mm. I've got one last question for you, Karen. You've been very, very patient. All of it's so interesting because it's stuff that we don't hear about because, as you say, this opposition in particular because of the pandemic have really not had much airplay. And I also think the tabloid media tend to avoid covering the opposition too heavily. Let's just put it that way. The sense I get from listening to everybody's questions and from getting various emails and direct messages on all of this is that people are really quite overwhelmed and quite ambivalent in many ways. And, you know, on one hand, we're seeing people, our politicians not debating policies and ideas. It's a lot about scare tactics and identity stuff, which we're all a bit sick of. Equally, it's all... Become quite confusing. Labour used to be the party for the workers, for people out in the suburbs, you know, doing it tough, blokes in high vis, all of that kind of thing, traditionally. And, you know, the Liberal Party used to tend to people in suits living in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and Sydney. And it really has switched around. SCOMO has really taken ownership. And of course, this, this began, I think, with the Howard years, has really Taken hold of, you know, the high vis wearing, you know, hole digging blokes out in the outer out suburbs, and in many ways, it looks like he's abandoning these inner city seats where the teal independents are running against these moderates in blue ribbon seats. He's kind of walking away from it. So there's been this whole tipping on its head of what we've traditionally thought. How in, and, and look, I should just throw in there, I spoke to a coal miner last week who's been a coal miner for 40 years, who says the Greens Party best represents coal miners wishing to have a just transition. He said it's the, they're the only party with a just transition plan, which is just mind boggling. Where's the press gallery at? Like, are you also, like, feeling kind of bamboozled by all of this or is it exciting should we be excited by all the shifts and changes and and the fact that there's going to be a shake up of some sort
0: i won't speak for the rest of my colleagues but i think it's good when there's a political contest you know i think democracy is better when everything is contested and one side doesn't just sweep in you know or wipe out the other side i just i think in the end when there isn't contestability Within a political party or between parties and candidates, the outcome can can end up a lot worse. Sometimes you can get things done if you've got a solid majority, but eventually you you get a bit complacent. And so having the contest I think is really important the point about the 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 high vis blokes and the traditions of who represents whom, I think that does go back to Howard, and he famously won what he liked to call the Howard Battlers, people in the outer suburbs who had traditionally been Labor heartland, and he flipped that around. And it was held by the it's been held by the coalition for a long time. A lot of those previously Labor areas, because he encouraged people's ambition, and he said, you know, you should be you should. Be allowed to strive to have the money like the people in the eastern suburbs as well. And people liked that idea about having ambition. And Scott Morrison has very much modeled himself on John Howard in trying to do that. I think where our politics have fallen down in recent times is politicians generally they take shortcuts on everything. They want to, they they get too tricky. They're not into the old persuade me, you know, put the argument and persuade me why it's right. They want to sort of. You know, you know, use tricky social media and focus testing and um, pushing emotional buttons to get you to follow them and then they'll do whatever they want. Um, and there's, there's much less of the upfront, hey, we've got to do something. It's really hard. Here's why it's hard, but here's why it's important. Here's how we're going to do it. Mm. Thinking about you and how to minimize the hurt for you. And will you give us your support? Now, it's a very old fashioned view and politics isn't like that anymore. But I I miss it. <laughs> it would be better if it was. And to give to give John Howard the credit, after saying he would never do a GST, he backflipped on that and said he would. But he did announce it before he went to an election and he argued the case for it. And that was probably the last time a government was willing to stand up and argue for something that's hard
1: before an election. And take us on the journey. And take us on the journey as a leader. I agree with you on that. I wasn't necessarily the biggest Howard fan, but I do think that that was the last time we saw someone being able to take us on a journey and make those hard decisions. You know, gun controls, all of that kind of thing was probably part of it too.
0: It's a a really important skill of a political leader, the skill of persuasion. And I think it's a neglected skill in our politics today. I think communications are also very important. And and they all try to polish up those skills and strategy and policy making. But persuasion, which goes to your credibility, your genuineness as a person, your your apparent concern for the people you represent and their best interests, all of those things come together to make you a persuader. And I, I would like politicians
1: personally to work a bit harder on that. Karen, that's been an awesome chat. You've taught me a lot. Thank you so much. And good luck over the next couple of weeks as you (laughs) draw closer to May 21st.
0: Thanks very much for the opportunity to chat. And it has been excellent. Thank you.
1: So next episode I will be doing a complete rundown on how to vote and I've had so many questions to this effect and they will all be answered, I hope, in this episode. So I'll be talking about how preferences work and what to do with your ballot paper on the day. So tune in to that one. Until then, stay engaged, stay wild.